Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with former Deputy Secretary of State Robert Zellick. Candidate George W. Bush ran for president in 2000, labeling China as a strategic competitor. In contrast to the outgoing Clinton administration's talk of building a strategic partnership. During the first few months of the Bush administration, parts of the U.S. government began shifting policies to reflect those new views of looming competition with China. Then came September 11, 2001. U.S. foreign and defense policy reoriented massively towards the global war on terror and Afghanistan. President Bush spoke with emotion about the attacks during his first overseas trip to Shanghai in October 2001 for a regional APEC leaders meeting. The attacks of September 11th took place in my country, but they were really an attack on all civilized countries. The role of the dead and the missing includes citizens from over 80 nations, 96 Russians, 23 Australians, at least 30 Chinese. Bob Zellick joined the George W. Bush administration as the United States Trade Representative at a time of uncertainty about global commerce and international institutions. He went on to become Deputy Secretary of State, and from that position, gave an influential speech in 2005 on China's role in the world. In that address, he urged China to become a responsible stakeholder in the international system, which then sent Chinese officials and researchers scrambling to identify those terms and concepts in Mandarin. What is a stakeholder, they asked, and who decides which countries are responsible? But we begin our conversation with Ambassador Zellick's first trip to Hong Kong in 1980. His work for the George H.W. Bush administration at the Treasury and State Departments and the contours of dealing with China in the twilight of the Cold War. Ambassador Robert Zellick, thank you so much for taking time to contribute to this project. Before getting to your time at the Department of State and at USTR and at the World Bank, I wanted to start with your first trip to Hong Kong in 1980. What were you doing there and what struck you as uh, interesting? Well, I had just been married and uh, I was there on a fellowship. But we were both teaching at a small college, which offered some interesting insights because this was a, just a couple of years after Deng Xiaoping's opening. But we also took the opportunity to go to Macau. And from Macau, we spent a one-day visit within the People's Republic. And that was a wonderful vantage point for my work in the future because I got a personal view of what China looked like in 1980 and could see the huge changes that took place afterwards. Uh, we went to a communal farm. I remember a lot of people dressed in gray and blue. It was a lot of poverty. There was a small city, his name I don't remember, but it was a, basically a concrete city, uh, water and sewage along the way. And so uh, everything was, was pretty poor. Um, but people were enthusiastic. And so uh, I'm really delighted or glad that I had that opportunity. 
And later on, when you met with very senior Chinese officials and when you were with the World Bank, did you find it useful to kind of pull out your of history course. of I going mean, to China? And, and, and of course, people were interested that that uh, that I had had a chance to see China because you know one of the issues about China is that particularly for Westerners that just go to Beijing or Shanghai, they don't really have a sense of of the huge transformation within a generation or two. And the Chinese do know this, obviously. And in some ways, it, people are misled actually still by how the Chinese leadership kind of views their challenges. I mean, these are people, some of them, that spent time in the Cultural Revolution in caves. Now, that gives them some sense about upheaval and the th dangers of upheaval, but it also gives them a sense of pride in how far they've come, which is uh, justly deserved. When I was at the World Bank, I made a real effort to try to visit a number of provinces, including poor rural areas, to try to get a better sense of some of the challenges that China's leadership faces internally. And that's still an issue today because, again, in the U.S. and elsewhere, people look at China's external behavior. It's understandable. But it's important to keep in mind that China's leaders are busy trying to think how they deal with these 1.3, 1.4 billion people. So you were um, a close advisor to Secretary Baker mm -hmm. at both Treasury and at State. Uh, could you talk a little bit about his November trip in 1991? I think it's important to see the context. The context, of course, was that... Uh, Secretary Baker used to refer to President Bush as the desk officer for China. So he was the one that was personally <laughs> interested in maintaining this relationship. And, and, and when people look at foreign affairs issues, they often sort of segment them. It's important to realize at the same time that we were sort of dealing with the changes in the great transformation in Eastern Europe and, and then obviously in Germany and German unification, you had Tiananmen Square in June. President Bush was committed to trying to maintain the relationship. Uh, the visit, I think, comes out of also the Gulf War. So remember, Baker and Bush put together this extraordinary coalition to uh, counter Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. And China is a member of the UN Security Council. And there was a lot of toing and froing, which is actually discussed, uh, I think, uh, quite well in Baker's sort of uh, book about being Secretary of State about trying to get the Chinese to either vote yes or to, um, at a minimum, abstain on the key resolutions. And part of this, the Chinese want sanctions lifted. They want the president to visit. They want Secretary Baker to visit. There's, they want to have their own meetings with the president. And so this is kind of the, the nuts and bolts of diplomatic maneuvering. Sorry, when you say sanctions, just to be clear, you're talking about U.S. sanctions on China US because the Tiananmen yeah. and, and the other context that is important was the Congress wanted to do much more to cut off the relationship. So Bush is pushing back against the Congress. We arrive, I think, late, I think it's November of 91. Baker had said in advance that for the visit to be successful, there would need to be certain actions taken. And the Chinese are very reserved about this. Um, I think this is part they're negotiating, but also, I think, probably their own internal issues. Baker has a series of meetings with Li Peng, the prime minister, with the president, Yang, and others. And there's not much yielding at all. The one person that shows a little bit of sensitivity to the events of Tiananmen Square is Jiang Zemin. President Bush has given Secretary Baker a letter to try to take to see Deng Xiaoping. We do not see Deng Xiaoping. Their system has been heavily closed down, and people are probably reciting the lines for their colleagues as much as they're reciting it for us. But also, you know, they, even today, uh, I think it's important to recognize that Xi Jinping and the leadership look upon the end of the Soviet Union with shock and uncertainty about how communist systems can 
can come to an end. So we were there about three days, uh, and Baker keeps making the point that we're going to need to show some progress on these issues, or he'll leave and he'll be dis- determined a failure, and the Congress will probably take the issue away from the, from the president. We were focusing a number on the proliferation issues. And again, as people think today about you know whether cooperation with China has produced any results, they tend to ignore the gains we had on nonproliferation in missiles, where China in the 80s was one of the worst proliferators with the Middle East, Pakistan, others. The Chinese show some movement on these issues, it's sort of initial sense. On the trade issues, there's some, they're really sort of starting the process that will proceed through APEC and eventually the WTO on intellectual property and other terms. The Chinese at this time are demanding just to be set into the, uh, come into the WTO and they were far from qualifying. But then also human rights. And the Chinese are very grudging on this. They uh, accept that some of the people who've served their terms can sort of leave China. They accept that they respond partially to some of the lists that we provided, just as had been provided to the Soviets in the Cold War. And they do agree to an ongoing dialogue and discussion on the human rights issue. So it's thin gruel, but there's something to be said about the results. Um, And it fit, again, sort of the strategy we're trying to pursue of shape Chinese behavior, integrate them into the system, uh, recognize and support sort of and move towards a a economic reform process with, with the belief that this can also try to support uh, a more open society. You'd mentioned the Cold War during that time. Where did China kind of fit in in German reunification, in other parts of the NATO alliance? And how would you kind of assess where it was in the kind of foreign policy apparatus? How do you kind of assess where China fit in? It's, at the it's mainly a shock to show the downside risks that could occur. There could have been a Tiananmen Square in Leipzig uh, in late in 89. And it was always a worry that we had you know, whether it's in the Baltic states or within the Soviet Union itself. China goes into its own shell after 89, and the main action becomes the efforts of President Bush and his administration to try to keep some ties uh, going. And this is, of course, dealing with Congress. So the one other point of this that, uh, with the end of the Cold War, you're realizing the ice is breaking in many spheres, I always try to look at China in the larger context of our Asian relations. So we'd had security alliances, obviously, with South Korea, with Japan, Australia, Thailand, um, the Philippines. But we had some concern with the new environment that we needed to create an economic fabric that kept the United States engaged in addition to the security terms. That was, of course, one reason we pushed for the creation of APEC. And so we're seeing this in an Asia-Pacific context. The other small reminder I have is that um, I think one of the other people you've interviewed is Stape Roy. And Stape had been brought in as the executive secretariat uh, at the start of the Bush 41 administration, and he actually reported to me. But Stape obviously was an extraordinarily uh, China hand going back to a missionary family. And as one way of trying to, frankly, recognize his performance, Late in that period, we we nominated Stape to be the ambassador uh, to China. And I recall um, he started to identify Zhu Ranji in 92 and sort of urged me to come. Frankly, given the environment from 89 to 91 and the toughness of that visit, it wasn't the first on my agenda. 
I, in, in retrospect, I've often thought, oh, it would have been interesting to meet Zhu Ranjui at those periods. In 1992, yeah. Sure. Well, let's uh, fast forward to your time in which Zhu Rongji was the principal actor, that is, the bilateral WTO accession uh, negotiations happened in the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. And then when you came in in 2001 as USTR, you were doing the, the plurilateral po- process. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some in the incoming Bush administration who were talking about China as a strategic competitor. Mm-hmm. And then 9-11 kind of changed the framework with which much of the foreign policy apparatus happened. From your perch at USTR, how did you kind of see that talk of a strategic competitor? And did you notice any change of kind of post 9-11 in regards to China specifically? I've always found it possible to keep two different ideas in my mind at once. And so the strategic competitor came out of some discussions I remember we had with then Governor Bush and George Schultz was there. We're alert to the notion of a strategic competition. At the same time, we believed that you could try to integrate China more effectively into the global system. By the way, I think both those still apply today. This idea that you can disconnect or decouple from China, I think, is unrealistic and also not productive for U.S. interest. Because of my sort of strategic interest in China, my knowledge of it, um, and recognizing what the Clinton administration had done with the bilateral agreement, and you undoubtedly know the story of how that was sort of rejected and then put back on form, I put a priority on this early on. And so I actually surprised he was then young Chichur, who was the ambassador. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I asked him to come in. And I remember he told me later they were quite surprised that very early in the administration, I was focused on trying to sort of move along what would be the multilateral aspect. So when a country joins uh, the WTO, they do bilateral accords for market access with all the other countries. Those are available under most favored nation provisions with others. But there's also a series of rules related to the multilateral system. Another point going back to the experience, this shows the, the continuity of this with the point of my need about APEC in 91-92, was remember we're also negotiating to bring Taiwan in. To the WTO. We, in the WTO. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of sensitivity, you know, going back to the time of uh, Baker's visit in 91, the Chinese were adamant that they must come into the WTO before Taiwan. We wanted to do it simultaneously. You never were certain whether there'd be some last-minute hiccup. So you're trying to keep these sort of two on track. We start the process, so you're having to work out some real nitty-gritty details as well as sort of the basic rules system. And we were were alert to the notion that while China was still poor and developing, it was big. And so there were places where we wanted to try to, frankly, massage the rules to give us some cushion. And one of those actually is in the area of agricultural subsidies. There, There are provisions uh, without getting into all the nitty-gritty details that allow developed countries to have sort of a de minimis amount of subsidy at a 5% level. For developing countries, it's 10%. One of our objectives was to try to lower that, which we did do. And actually, in recent years, this kind of actually limited the Chinese in some degree. Then we had the EP3 plane incident. So where the uh, there's a crash of the, the American plane with a Japanese uh, fighter plane, the fighter pilot is killed, the EP-3 lands in Hainan, and it's a, it's a crisis because there's no response and we have to get the plane back. And I remember then asking President Bush, you know, do you want me to keep this on track? Do you want me to keep moving this forward this year? Because 
One of the challenges in policy, to get things done, you actually have to anticipate. And so to try to get this done by the end of 2001, when there will be another, uh, there's supposed to be another WTO ministerial, required moving through the milestones. And it was quite interesting. President Bush said, you know, our policy is to try to integrate. You know, now and then we'll have difficulties, but yes, you should continue to bring them in. Then we have September 11th. So we have another sort of (laughs) striking event. And this adds to the complexity because, remember, at this time, I'm trying to get the Trade Promotion Authority through. I'm trying to launch this global round at Doha. I'm trying to deal with the free trade area of the Americas, bilateral agreements to create some leverage. It's a busy time. And what happened after 9-11 was we had a APEC meeting that was in Shanghai, as I recall. When I arrived in Shanghai, I had somebody the next morning come to my door and say, um, you know, you may have been exposed to biological materials because there was this question about powders and so on and so forth. So it gives people a sense. You've got a few things going on your plate. Um, What worked well as a negotiation was we were doing this quietly with the Chinese. So we'd have APEC meetings during the day and then in the evening to some hour, late hours of the night, we'd be negotiating separately on what we thought were kind of the final sort of closing issues. The reason I mentioned that was that I had no public pressure at all to deliver a deal because no one even knew we were trying to close the deal. And so the Chinese, you could see, were under much more pressure than I was, which is a better place to be as a negotiator. One of the other issues, at that time, the AIG was uh, highly aggressive about its position, and they were frustrated, I think, with what Jeff or some of his team were doing. And they got quite hot, and sometimes American companies will do this, accused uh, the U.S. team of being traitors and so on and so forth. This was after 9-11. And so it's interesting. I, I called Hank Greenberg, who's not a shrinking violet, and I said, Hank, you know, if your people ever do this again, I said, I want to have an apology. I said, your people have no business calling my people traitors. After 9-11, they're you know, serving the country's interests. They're under sort of great stress. And frankly, this is outrageous. And fr- I'm not going to have my people ever talk to your people again unless you apologize. And I don't want to ever hear this again. And Hank backed up. So it's a little insight because you're you're negotiating with the Chinese, you're negotiating with Congress, you're negotiating with business groups all simultaneously in these situations. What I recall was we had reached what I thought was sort of terms with the Chinese on these remaining issues. And they said they had to check. And we were going to be flying back to the United States. Again, I didn't feel any need to sort of release something. But the Chinese obviously were so excited that they released it. And so when I was flying back, it became a front page sort of New York Times story. So the lion's share of the work went into the bilateral negotiations that the Clinton administration had done. And those were the prime market access points. But these were kind of some of the foundation stones for working with China in the future. Thanks. I was actually in Shanghai. I was at the embassy at the time and Mm. sent out to Shanghai to work both on the MRT uh, when you and the rest of the team came out, and then also for the leaders meeting. I'm sure you, you weren't told this, and you probably shouldn't have been, but you're a big runner. I presume you still are. Um, very, well, very I have t- back injuries, so yeah. At the time, very serious runner. This is Shanghai 2001. Uh, let's just say there weren't a lot of um, <laughs> foreigners running around the streets of Shanghai. And I remember you're, basically the Chinese hadn't hosted a multilateral event at the leader level ever before APEC in 2001. And so they used the MRT, the, the ministers responsible for trade meeting, mm-hmm. as their security example of, okay, here's how we're going to protect these heads of government or heads of state. They're going to come for the APEC leaders meeting in October. And so they treated you basically as a head of state or head of government for their own security practicing reasons. And so 
I remember the first day, the morning you got up at, I don't know, five o'clock in the morning and went running on the streets of Shanghai. And then that night, one of the security officers came to me and said, um, please, you need to tell your minister, do not go jogging. It's very dangerous on the streets of Shanghai. And I said, there's no way I'm going to tell him not to run. Like, if he wants to run, he needs to run. And so sure enough, the next morning, one of their security guards was ready, had his shoes on, and then was able to keep up with you for well, the time on the street. I remember... Uh where they had policemen who would sort of run either near me or behind me or something and so forth. Uh, they also a scooter support. And I remember found it was kind of frustrating in that this, this guy ran for a while, then got on the scooter. And then as we got near the end, he got off the scooter as like he's running ahead of me. It's like he's cheating in the race. So you, you I think it was that the, trip. I remember that. <laughs> so, but anyway... You had mentioned that Doha, you were trying to relaunch the round mm -hmm. to get a lot of the issues on the table that in the end kind of weren't put into an agreement. Can you talk a little about what you were trying to do in Doha and, and how you saw a relationship between not China specifically, but kind of updating the rules to uh, accommodate where nations were in, in, in the 2000s? Yeah, it's a big topic. Um, but and, and uh, because of the interest of developing countries, it had a big initial focus on agriculture, so not only disciplining subsidies, we wanted to discipline EU subsidies, other subsidies, others wanted to discipline our subsidies, but also market access, because the United States and agriculture is a combination of offensive and defensive positions. Um, our manufacturing tariffs are already relatively low, and so, again, another key point was that we didn't have much room to lower unless we got some of the bigger developing countries to lower. And one of the problems you could see in the Doha round, which now everybody acknowledges, but at the time some of the countries tried to deny, is you get special and differential treatment. You get, in a sense, some room to have higher barriers if you're developing countries. And frankly, you could see some of the larger, bigger middle-income countries were going to become fierce competitors. They tried to act as if they were sub-Saharan Africa. Right? But to be honest, the Chinese had accepted much stronger market access terms than, say, the Indians and Brazilians and so on and so forth. China's a latecomer into the system. And then in addition to manufacturing, because the U.S. and advanced economies have a large service sector, you needed to have rules and services. You needed to strengthen intellectual property rights. And always, as through today, the dispute resolution mechanism, what would be the rules and others. So there's a variety of different components. Just jumping ahead a little bit, um, how we worked with China in 2001 and afterwards actually becomes significant in that the Doha round gets off track in a Cancun meeting. But the Chinese at this point were not the obstructive parties. And the Chinese had a position, which I understood, which is they had actually contributed a lot recently in market access. They weren't eager to do more, but they were willing to be supportive. And what I remember in particular is that in 2003, after the uh, round had crashed in Cancun, I made an effort to restart the round, and we actually put together quite a successful uh, package at that point in Geneva. And um, because of my seniority in the U.S. position, I, in some ways I was coordinating different people in this. And uh, I had a good relationship with the Chinese. And so, you know, I, at points if I needed to say to the Chinese, look, I may need you to be a little bit more forthcoming on this, they would, so they would consider it. So they were, uh, compared to uh, India and Brazil and some other players, uh, they, they were more willing to try to make the system work. One of the... Uh things that this administration, the Trump administration, has said was that it, uh, the U.S. had erred in letting China into the WTO. How do you respond to that that kind of comment? Well, it's flat wrong. I mean, you know, 
until the Trump administration, China was the largest growing source of, for American exports. Um, so if you if you think American farmers don't need to sell, if you think that a lot of the businesses there that are making more money in China than elsewhere don't need to do business, there are problems which we can talk about, which, um, you know, and uh, in general, what you saw from the Chinese uh, accession was that they were pretty diligent about the quantitative measures. So their tariffs being lower, the, the, the measures dealing with um, quotas on issues that are uh, responsibilities that are a little harder to quantify, intellectual property rights enforcement, not just the rules, um, forced technology transfer, these or the, the sub subsidies arrangements. These become, not surprisingly, an ongoing need to push and identify and negotiate. Now, but frankly, this is where people have a narrow view. That's true with other countries, too. And it's true with the United States on occasion. It's hard for me to see the coherence of the current administration's policies because it's basically to raise tariffs. And it's not even clear how the tariffs are going to be related to the serious problems that I just outlined in a speech last night. So uh, I think more generally, uh, People in the administration don't like the WTO because they don't like the dispute settlement mechanism. They, the, this is an irony. The, starting in the Reagan administration, Bush 41 administration, Clinton administration pushed for a WTO dispute settlement mechanism that overcame the flaw of the GATT system. So the GATT system, which had begun in 1947, had dispute panels, but a country could always block it. So it was sort of rule of law unless a country didn't like it. Okay, well. That's the Trump administration. You know, uh, they like rule of law when it suits their purposes, but not when others do it. If you look at the U.S. record in WTO dispute settlement, won a lot of cases, right? So, and again, at heart, the Trump administration is protectionist. Trump said this is inauguration. He said he's a tariff man. That's ought to give you a clue. So he would prefer to raise barriers than to open markets. I would prefer to open markets and force some competition while having adjustment process. Thank you for mentioning the adjustment process that all countries go through. When I interviewed Wendy Cutler in this, um, her description was 2002, three and four was we were working with the Chinese to get barriers down and make sure that they were implementing according to the, the accession protocol. And that, that was the focus. Is that a fair? I would distinguish a little bit. We were, we were monitoring it closely. The Chinese were showed serious recognition that this is going to require big changes. Remember, the whole push in this in the 90s is Zhu Ranji wants to use the rules of the WTO to import into the Chinese system and bring more uh, competition. But to give you an example that I thought summed it up for me, Long Yong Tu, who was the vice minister who did much of the negotiation, gave a speech in the US after accession. And he used three examples. He said, you know, to give you a sense of China's needing to come to terms with these rules, he said, you know, the notion of the WTO trade system is win-win. He said, under Chinese culture, the wind blows from the east or the west. You're cold or warm. There's you, it's win-lose. So the, it's interesting when I see China use the win-win concept now. He was saying in 2001 that was a foreign concept. Another one is transparency. He said there's a Chinese homily about fish that swim in water that's too clear die. And, and so, again, he was an amusing way of saying, we have to learn to adapt to this. And the other one for trade people is called national treatment, which means you have to treat other countries in the same way you treat your own. 
And Long mentioned that, uh, that he said this was very popular among Chinese private sector because they said if China had to treat foreign companies like they treat the state-owned companies, there's a better argument that Chinese private sector should also be treated in the same way. It's amusing, but it's an insight about the fact that they were going to have to adapt. What we first did was that we didn't in any way step back from the nature of the obligations, but we would bring them to the attention of the Chinese in all countries, including China, there's often vested interest. We'd persuade them to try to get it fixed. Many times they would fix it. And if need be, I remember in one case, I think we did file a WTO case. I think they resolved the case before we did it. But we were willing to use that leverage and pressure. So we weren't uh, trying to give people a particular room. But frankly, if you've got people who by and large uh, have decided they want to apply the rules and it's in their own interest to apply the rules, but it's new, they probably am trying to make sense to try to work with them to try to do so. And again, this was the attitude of, of the U.S. business sector that was taking advantage of it. But again, to give you two other little pieces of flavor on this, um, there were some problems that accumulated even by 2003. And I remember working with Don Evans with the, the joint, the JCCT, Joint Commercial, whatever it was, group. And we identified some things in IPR and other things. And we actually got a package of pretty good results. And we were alert to the fact that uh, the 2004 elections, you wanted to demonstrate that this process was on track. And the Chinese sort of continued to cooperate with us. Now, one difference that I have with uh, Charlene Barshevsky is that she makes a point that there was a special safeguard provision that was sort of put in. And she argues, in my view, without any backing for the <laughs> other than her assertion, that if we'd used the special safeguard more, this would have dissipated political opposition to China. I personally, I don't, I, I, it's hard to believe these are small cases. I think the biggest issue was exchange rate misalignment, which isn't really addressed until 2005 and six or seven or afterwards. I remember those cases specifically as they came up because it was a very low, ambiguous standard and the International Trade Commission sent the cases on. The first case was with something called pedestal actuators, which is basically like a barber's chair or, um, frankly, on the scooters that elderly and disabled people have to sort of move the seat up and down. It turned out, the best in my recollection, there was only one other producer. It was in Taiwan. So it's not going to help the United States and it's just going to increase cost for elderly and disabled people. Well, how is that in the national interest? Okay. The second one I remember was wire hangers. Okay. So, you know, we're going to increase the cost for Korean dry cleaners all over the country, you know, and so for what real purpose here? And the third one, I forget the product, but I remember that the company had been actually, there was either a civil or criminal legal action against it based on their worker uh, provisions. I remember this was very handy because when the Democrats in the Congress asked about it, I said, well, would you want to support a company that's violating labor standards? But there was a logic. And the logic was also that, frankly, I wanted to push the Chinese to recognize that we weren't going to try to abuse the system where there's ambiguities. But then I also expected when I did bring a matter that I would expect it to get solved. And to me, there's a there is a contrary test, which is so the Obama administration decided they would use these provisions, which they did with some steel tires. There was a tire for it. And what the analysis showed was the job saved from steel tires was about eight hundred to $900,000 a job. And the Chinese retaliated. So you lost something. So this is it's easy for people to say, why don't you protect this group? Why don't you protect that group? Look, I basically believe that while 
one should try to help people with adjustment, and I use something called the 201 safeguard provision actually for steel to help do this, that in the end of the day, if you build high barriers uh, to your own system, remember 40 to 50% of your imports are intermediate goods or raw materials. So you're just going to make yourself sort of less effective. But I was also trying to shape the Chinese behavior and thinking. And, you know, I would contend if you go look at the sort of the Chinese performance, at least through my period, up to the start of 2005, um, they were they were seeking to comply and sort of meeting the tests, and and U.S. exports were certainly increasing considerably. I do think that the flaw in the larger system, which we probably don't have time to get into here, was that there are terms under both the WTO, under the old GATT system, and under the IMF, where you're not supposed to manipulate currencies, and clearly. Uh, Again, there's a logic for this. Remember, in the late 90s, there's a financial crisis in East Asia. China had pegged to the dollar. At that point, Larry Summers and Rubin, oh, they were pleased that they held the peg, so it didn't have a further crisis. But the Chinese um, were holding to this peg, and it did give them a exchange rate advantage. Um, that does not now exist, by the way, so it shows another example of where the Chinese came to terms. And... Chinese current account surplus, which had been about 10% of GDP, quite high, is now about zero. One of the things that uh, you worked on as Deputy Secretary of State was a dialogue with your Chinese counterpart, Taiping Guo, who I think at the time was the executive vice foreign minister. minister. Yeah. Uh, and but party leader. And party leader, right, more importantly. Uh, and you um, started out really a discussion with him about what the globe looks like. And then you have the assistant secretaries of state kind of meet their Chinese counterparts to also talk about what was happening around the world to try to match up. Does China see the world the same way the U.S. does? Or can our vision of the world kind of overlap? And where does it overlap and not overlap? Um, I wanted to ask about one part of the senior dialogue and one trip in particular in which you took Daibingo to Hyde Park, I think, mm -hmm. uh, New York. Again, let's set a little context here. I had been U.S. Trade Representative, so I was a cabinet member. And Condi Rice goes over to become Secretary of State. She asked me to become her deputy. Normally in the U.S. system, you don't move from being a cabinet member to being a deputy. And it's more fun to run your own system. <laughs> and I had, because of relationships with Bush and Condi and the Vice President, I had a fair amount of autonomy as U.S. Trade Representative. But to be frank, you know, when you're in those positions, people ask you to do something you have to seriously consider. And Condi was always very gracious. She said, and President Bush and Vice President Cheney said, look, there's a big world out there. I had known the State Department from my experience with Baker. You guys can kind of share the load. Well, in reality, there's one Secretary of State. But one of the areas that I was given some responsibility for was this dialogue with China. I had been thinking about this anyway. Because, again, to try to give you some perspective, while part of our story is the details of, of you know, trade matters and others, uh, it helps to try to see trends and anticipate and if you have a strategic mindset where you're trying to shape things. And so, recall, the whole strategy across a number of presidents, some seven presidents over 30 years, had been to integrate China in the system. Well, by this point, you have China in the WTO, it's UN Security Council, it's in IMF, it's in World Bank, it's agreed with a number of the non-proliferation items, ozone depletion. So the question is, you know, moving beyond uh, forms, what are the norms of Chinese behavior? So this, this is going to lead to the responsible stakeholder. But I wanted to have a discussion with uh, senior level people in China about these issues, both economic and political. 
So one other point that sort of lost the history was that the Undersecretary for Economics in the State Department had a dialogue with the NDRC, the, the planning group. And so I had this idea of, well, let's try to combine the economics with the foreign and security policy through this strategic or senior dialogue. It's quite interesting um, because when I went to China, um, I wanted to combine those, but the Chinese system had a hard time combining those. It's kind of amusing in the light of people thinking China has a very sophisticated international economic diplomacy. Well, they couldn't even get the two ministries to meet. So however they did it, it was very secret or perhaps non-existent. So I had separate meetings with them. And I knew that Dai Bingguo was a character of some importance because he was, while he wasn't the minister, he was the party leader in the process, which is demonstrated because he goes on to become state council. The reason this is important is people use the term strategic dialogue somewhat loosely for different purposes. Now, when I, just to jump ahead, when I left, you know, Hank Paulson, who's a friend of mine, sort of, he used the strategic economic dialogue in part to sort of have suzerainty over the sort of American economic uh, sort of agency. So he had these very big meetings and then he had smaller meetings on the side. But mine was a different model. Mine was, I, mean, I don't mean to presume it's the same as Kissinger's, but it was a very small group. So we had, you know, three or four people on a side. Um, and I had, frankly, freedom to proceed as I wanted. And, and I was trying to stretch their thinking about not just the issues of the day, but kind of what are the issues to be anticipating systemically. So let me give you two examples that I haven't talked about. But so one, I remember talking with uh, with Dai to say, look, let's just assume someday that the Korean Peninsula is unified. I'm not saying that we're provoking it, but let's assume it's unified. I said, Your first instinct in China would probably be to say you don't want an alliance of a united Korea with the United States because it means U.S. forces on the Yalu. And we saw where that happened in 1951. Um, and But instead, I said, you know, in reality, I said, I think the United States would probably keep just some modest air and naval assets in the South. And consider the implications if the U.S. didn't have an alliance with Korea. They said, all of a sudden, you know, Korea would again be the small country among China, Russia, Japan. Maybe it would inherit a nuclear weapon from the North. Maybe it would keep it for its own security. If South Korea, if Korea keeps a nuclear weapon, Russia's got one, China's got one. I said, do you think that's going to affect Japanese behavior? And I said, and what do you think will be the long-term effect of the ability to have a U.S. alliance with Japan if we don't have an alliance with Korea? And the Chinese, and Dai, of course, for family reasons, was quite uh, negative about Japan. And they are ambivalent because on the sort of the idea of the cork in the bottle, the idea of the United States alliance you know, keeps Japan from being militaristic and threatening. On the other hand, they're worried about the United States' security relationship with Japan. And this is the type of discussion. If you're a U.S. official and you've been dealing with global issues, which I had been fortunate enough to deal with, you know, back with Baker and different pieces, you, you tend to think in these bigger terms, or at least some people do. And so I was trying to engage my Chinese counterparts in that. Another example was Iran. So in Iran, um, you know, I, this is, we were trying to put focus on uh, the Iranian nuclear program at the time. And uh, I would emphasize all the way up to my meetings uh, with uh, the prime minister about kind of the importance of this, the supporting us on sanctions. And I remember one Chinese official, as I get in the car, said, look, he said, we get the message. We'll try to help on Iran. He said, but 
you have to understand three things. One, we've had a long relationship, so we have to figure out how to deal with that. Now, second, we can't do exactly what you do. And third, the Iranians are a little crazy. We don't know what they'll do. Okay, but that's the sort of, at least, where you may not always agree. You want to understand what the other person's thinking about. I use this dialogue to emphasize that, you know, the importance of security in Afghanistan would be important for China as much as it would be for us. And I got them to contribute to, I think, a conference in London and put in some money and support. Another one, at the same time, I'm working on the genocide in Darfur. And I, I pushed uh, the Chinese because they were involved with the oil. And so they had a narrow interest. And I tried to explain not only how this could help us, but could help their own image globally by, you know, if you're dealing with a regime that's that's accused of genocide. And Tom Christensen, who became the deputy assistant secretary, covers this in his book about how he deals with it. Tom is an example of I had reached out to broader communities to try to consult with experts. And but I also had in mind of always building America's capacity, not only within the Foreign Service and the State Department, but on the outside of people that had some experience. So I, you know, was the person who identified Tom and say, you know, can we bring you in as a deputy assistant secretary in China? And I think it shows in his writing and his work. So you're, you're trying to build a little bit of capital over time. So the point with the, the, the dialogue uh, was not to necessarily deal with a long list of problems. Eh? And if you go back and you look at sort of when Kissinger in his book Diplomacy describes opening with China, he says, look, we're trying to get the relationship right, which will help us deal with the problems. You don't start with the long laundry list of problems. And also, as friends in the Chinese academic community and policy community have sort of pointed out to me, something I generally knew already, but they affirmed, the Chinese like to think in terms of principles before they get down to the nitty gritty. Americans sometimes are impatient with that because they think, oh, you're just trying to avoid discussion of the things, the problems we have to solve. You need a combination of both. And I'm big on results, but I want people to understand the strategic context. I like history, so put this in a historical context. For, to help, the, at least I think it helps understand how other people view their history in these issues. And here, of course, America has a sort of a complex record with China. We weren't a colonial power in China. In some ways, you know, we take the indemnity from the Boxer Rebellion and use it to help found Tsinghua University and scholarships. Because we had a missionary tradition with China, and we're sort of trying to convert the Chinese, whether to become commercial people, Democrats and Republicans, or, or uh, Christians, there's a, a pendulum of relations that swings back and forth. Which, by the way, you know, if you think about the world today, we're about ready to have the pendulum swing back again. So I am argue that we need to have more consistency without yielding our principles. As part of this, I'm trying to build the relationship with Dai. And so I, either I or my team had the idea about bringing him up to uh, Hyde Park to see the Franklin Roosevelt Library. And of course, Franklin Roosevelt, in his concept of, of sort of a post-World War world after World War II, is kind of has a special place for the China. It happened to be the Republic of China, not the People's Republic, but, and his family had a long ties with uh, merchants, probably. We actually went to the library, and you could see kind of some of the initial draft that Churchill had with Roosevelt talking about, um, you know, the creation of the UN Security Council and China being there. Right. By the way, Churchill, by takes all the Commonwealth countries and others and puts them underneath Great Britain. The UK. <laughs> uh, 
You had, uh, I didn't plan this, but it worked out well. You had the editing of uh, FDR's speech after Pearl Harbor with the Day of Infamy, words that he edited and put in, wow. Chinese like that. <laughs> and, right. and so, you know, you're, you're trying to give a sense that your dialogues are fitting into a larger stream of history and events. Um, and, you know, it's, it's part of diplomacy is, is uh, showing people respect, uh, paying attention to them, uh, giving them uh, a treatment, while also trying to encourage them to take a certain direction. And so at least from what I learned, Dai found it to be a, a positive gesture. I think it snowed a little bit and somebody, his, the embassy had to buy him snowshoes. You had mentioned uh, the speech that you had mentioned of, of having China be a responsible stakeholder in the kind of international system. You, as you know, set off a, a firestorm within Chinese policy circles first in translating the term and then in kind of what it meant for China and well, how it Well, but it's connected. The reason it's connected to the dialogue in that um, the, in addition to trying to uh, engage the Chinese these ways, I'm reaching out to Chinese experts in the State Department, our policy planning staff, Evan Feigenbaum was there. Jeff Bader was out of government at this point, but I reached out to him. And I actually had sort of two extensive seminars, one on economic issues, one on political security issues. And I was trying to think through my own approach about what our goals and strategy should be for China. Um, and so this is sort of interesting for people that sometimes they think these all get bogged down in interagency processes. It depends on the people and the time. So uh, at this point in the second Bush administration, my relations with the Defense Department, the White House, and those are pretty good. You know, not only had I known the people and worked with the campaign, but, you know, I was really kind of the number two to Baker in the recount. And, you know, so it sort of shows, well, people might think, well, you're more technocratic. I've got ties on the political side. And so, therefore, you, you get more running room. You want to use processes a little different than just having endless papers being circulated for interagency discussion. So I fortunately had the freedom to do that. I included Mike Green, who's the NSC person who I have great respect for, has written an excellent book about U.S. relations with East Asia. I then also, in, in this process, I had a meeting with Zheng Bijin, who was a sort of a whisperer to Chinese leaders going back to Deng Xiaoping, certainly Hu Jintao, as I understood it. And he had written an article in Foreign Affairs that got a lot of attention called um, China's Peaceful Rise. Uh, the Chinese later edited this because it sounded too threatening. So they had China's peaceful development. Um, but so I thought I'm trying to shape the public debate as well as frame our own thinking. So I took our, our dialogue and I took these outside groups and I met with Evan who, Feigenbaum, who was on the policy planning staff and others. And we crafted this idea of a speech about responsible stakeholders. And so I had this opportunity to speak I think it was late in the year in 2005, the U.S. Committee on National, uh, US National China Committee Relations. I forget the exact. And so, and the, the important point was that I, I was trying to respond to Zhang uh, Bijan, and I was making the point that while everybody welcomes China's peaceful rise, nobody would bet their future on it. And I was then trying to make this point that we needed to go beyond integration to Chinese responsibility for the international system, which the United States had helped create, led, but which really had served China quite well. And I was trying to explain why it was in China's interest to be supportive of the system. 
and also that if China didn't bear responsibilities, the U.S. would lose domestic political support for the system. And so it was, it was a message that on the one hand paid respect to China for what it had accomplished, but it's also pushing China to do more. In the aftermath, I, I still find it sort of curious, and some people think this offered some concession to China, because you know, it, the first point is, do you believe that China has influence in the world? Well, yes, okay, in different forms. Then wouldn't it make sense for China to take responsibilities to help the U.S.-led system? How can you be against that? And moreover, this didn't escape the Chinese. I'm paying them a compliment, but I'm, I didn't say this explicitly, but I'm implicitly saying, and the U.S. will be the umpire to decide whether you've met the standard. But in a, in a cooperative way and, and recognizing that China will also have a voice and Chinese suggestions will also have to be taken into account. That was a good example is that we're going to come, we'll come to this later, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. In my sort of 30 years of public service in and out of government, everybody wanted the United States to do things and pay for it. Frankly, if the Chinese wanted to pay for infrastructure following U.S. rules and guidance and governments, how can you be against that? Um, and, and, and again, they hired a bunch of my former colleagues at the World Bank to try to meet the, the appropriate standards. So there's, this is this challenge we have now where people are just trying to get into the idea that cooperation with China failed. And whatever you think about what we should do in the future, that is a very inaccurate, mistaken assumption. And, and again, I've dealt with a range of views on diplomacy, but fooling yourself is not a good way to start your diplomacy. And if you look at, at proliferation issues, if you look at the economic issues, trade issues, environmental issues, there's a long list of things where we've been able to cooperate successfully. And again, maybe this is my experience with Baker and my own experience, is that I'm there to get things done for my country. And, and I'm trying to do it in a way, if others can benefit and we can do it in a way that's a win-win, I don't see what the problem is of that. Now, I'm not ignorant of the things that China does that... Uh, whether security systems or, you know, in Zhejiang province or in other areas that sort of violate U.S. norms. But my view is, again, the U.S. should be free, as Ronald Reagan said, to stand for those, make the position on those, but still seek to cooperate. I mean, particularly, you know, I've worked with so many countries around the world, people are going to have different cultures, different perspectives, so on and so forth. Frankly, one of the oddities about the U.S. administration now is that we're in constant confrontation with China, but we don't stand for our own ideals. And another key point going forward, this is one that Evan Feigenbaum has made. Yeah. If once China's integrated in the system, are you really shocked that they're going to try to nudge it towards their preferences and norms? The shocking thing is that we're abandoning the system that we created. Right? So you can't beat something with nothing. We should have to be in there competing with our own ideas, building partnerships. That used to be the strength of America. That's how we won the Cold War. Um, but then the other point that Evan made is a good one, which is that China kind of has a two-track approach on this. It'll work within the system, but if those systems get bogged down, it'll develop an option. And that option in some ways is captured by Belt and Road, which is a more traditional bilateral Chinese tributary state model. You work with us, we'll take care of you. You threaten us or you get you don't do what we want, well, you'll be penalized. Now, I think there are ways you can improve Belt and Road, as I've written elsewhere, using the types of standards for the AIB and others. But the whole concept, uh, going back to the responsible stakeholder, was to try to recognize that whatever the problem is of the future, 
climate change, proliferation, world hunger, global financial crisis. You're really not going to be able to do it without China at the table. And and again, I mean, when without going through every piece of this, you know, I, I now I'm at the World Bank in the global financial crisis. Well, the Chinese had the 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 biggest and sort of quickest uh, sort of program to have stimulus. Um, and they certainly resisted any actions, as the Russians and others proposed, that would have made life harder. So I don't see how it serves U.S. interests to just raise tariffs, have uh, sort of conflicts, but then don't get anything out of it. I mean, I'm not against pushing hard or conflicts. I've been part of actual wars. But on the other hand, you know, pick your shots. I want to get to your time as a World Bank president. Could you just talk a little bit about that and yeah. and, and, it, and it, your it, experience it, with the World Bank? I mean, the so when I become president of the World Bank in 2007, I came in at a time of crisis. My successor had been pushed out. The civil service staff was in a revolutionary mood, which is unusual for civil service staffs. Every three years, the World Bank has to create a funding mechanism where it raises literally tens of billions of dollars for IDA, its International Development Association, for the poorest countries to give grants and others. That was stuck in the done in the water. Uh, the Chinese announced when I joined that they would contribute to IDA. Okay, it's a small amount, but it was symbolic to sort of you know laying out of hands and sort of saying we're supporting this guy. Um, but and as a, another little point, um, China had been a beneficiary of IDA. And so they had these very long-term, almost lower, no interest rate credits. And so um, when I later had to have another uh, sort of round for IDA, I went to them and said, look, can we get you to repay these? Because the economic cost will not be high, but I can really get billions back for, for the Africans. And it's interesting, this shows the Chinese, and I said, you know, you, this will people will like this. You'll look good, right? But the Chinese didn't want to be singled out. They, I needed to get a couple other countries to do this, even though the Chinese amounts dwarf theirs. Sure. Okay, but yeah. it gives you a little sense of, even though you know you would think it is a positive for China, mm -hmm. they wanted to be careful about sort of mm -hmm. how it was seen. But the larger point was, um, I had a very good experience working with China. The Chinese had appointed very good people in their office. Uh, they either came from the Ministry of Finance or the PBOC, which is very good. This was the era of, of Governor Zhou Xiaotran at the PBOC. And I'd had contacts in and out of government with some of the people in the PBOC world, very professional, very high quality. And shortly after I take office, we're starting to move into the global financial crisis. So it's, it's sort of all hands on deck dealing in, in the developing country world. You know, there was a food price crisis at the same time. Um, and one of the stories is you hear about all this concerned about the euro or Greece or the uh, central banks, the developing world actually managed to handle this relatively well. And that wasn't a total accident. I mean, and again, to show the connection, my friend from Europe, Pascal Lamy, who had been European Trade Commissioner, goes on to become head of the WTO. And it shows where people make a difference. We could see that the central bank policies were going to basically choke off trade finance because without getting into the details. And we both had the standing and knowledge to say, you know, it's bad enough that we're going to have a big recession. It's even worse if we squeeze all the poorest countries. So we could push back against kind of the central bankers' rules on those types of things. But 
we had a lot of innovations uh, from open data systems to think special efforts on climate change to trying to deal with post-conflict states. And I found the Chinese to be very open and cooperative. I mean, even you, you have your own capital that you raise and, but, and you have these special funds like IDA, countries will also contribute trust funds to support. And we had one that from some of the Nordics that wanted to focus on democracy. And with the Chinese, if I could make it rule of law and good governance as opposed to democracy, they would, and, and it was up to countries to decide, they could work with them. So I found that at least with that community of Chinese policymaking, if you kind of open the door and build trusting relationships, you could get a lot done. Now for the the other part of it, however, is part of diplomacy, and the World Bank job in its best is also diplomacy, is also you know, some of the symbolism. So in one of my early visits, I went to uh, the hometown of Deng Xiaoping in Sichuan province and bring a photo for the museum of the Robert McNamara, who had been the president of the World Bank in 1980 when China is joining, uh, and Deng Xiaoping. So I'm paying homage to our combined sort of lineage. The Chinese, I think, had some sense of my knowledge of history, too. So when Chongqing, I wanted to see sort of either Stilwell or Chenault's sort of efforts of this. They took me up to uh, Shenyang, where the some of the Manchurian incident took place, the, or the Marco Polo Bridge. And I remember going to a museum there about World War II. And you see kind of the Chinese communist version, which is, you know, the... Uh, Chiang Kai-shek is the guy who's messing everything up. China wins the war against Japan. There's one little photo about Pearl Harbor, kind of, it. and I pointed out maybe a few things happened between 41 and 45. But in all in good spirit, they people. This is kind of you push people on some of these items, but with the with the right attitude, with the good relations uh, developed. In some ways, this is to understand the Chinese system. The reformers like to use outsiders to keep pushing the system. This was the Zhu Ranji strategy in the 90s. So on one of my visits to China, as we were approaching uh, the 30th anniversary, the vice minister of finance says, look, Bob, everybody thinks that Chinese, you know, really like to celebrate anniversaries, and we do. But uh, let's try to do something significant for the 30th anniversary. And so they, and this is quite intriguing, he says, we would like you to propose to our leaders a special multilateral study about where China needs to go in structural reform. So they're using me to propose to the, the leadership. And again, one thing I don't want to forget is I, I'm also trying to signal my openness to their thinking. I appointed the first non-developed country person as chief economist to the World Bank, and it's Justin Lin, who's Lenny Chinese. Folk. Now, Justin's view of structural, new structural economics is a little different than mine, but I'm trying to create an environment where there's different views. Justin had gotten his PhD at the University of Chicago. He's a hero in China because he'd been from Taiwan, and he right. goes to he China, swim over, right. across. Right. And so they want me to put this idea, this was in the late uh, Wen Jiabao, Hu Jintao era, um, and uh, so I propose it, and they agree, and we work with uh, the DRC, the, which is the, the development group yep. of the state council. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the co-chairs was a man named Lu He, who goes on to become vice premier. Um, so it helped connect me to the reform community. Um, but also, we, we bring in international experts from all over, and it, it makes a larger point. When many people see the World Bank, to be honest, they 
mistake it because it's called bank. And so they think its main job is putting out money. In reality, its main job is knowledge transfer and experience. And the Chinese learned how to use the World Bank very effectively and that they would have projects which they would use as pilots and analyze them thoroughly and then spread them all around. And again, in a world of climate change, I remember some of this was forestation, other projects that have mutual benefits. But as I would go visit some of these projects, people would, I remember, would say, you know, look, this project was great. But what we really learned was about the accounting and, you know, to be able to make sure to manage, it. manage okay. it effectively and so on and so forth. So I, at the time, I remember saying to the Chinese, look, you know, given Chinese income levels, it would be better if we could move to maybe knowledge transfer from contract. They liked the loans because it created their own discipline to them. Um, and, uh, and frankly, given the payments and others, it was a way of paying us for the services. I think going forward with China, it will probably be, and the World Bank does this with some others, where you probably do them as kind of contracts for knowledge transfer in different ways. But that, that China 2030 report really surveyed the structural challenges of China. So if you put this back in the context in which I've described, so in you know, 1980, I'm seeing the poorest part of China, and 89 or 91, I'm back there sort of seeing the early sort of parts of reform. I'm working on this on the trade issues uh, and seeing how that relates to the structure reform. China's becoming more sophisticated, but I honestly thought I could help from the World Bank's perch to keep China uh, a constructive player in the international system, but also contributing to others in dealing with some of the challenges, whether exchange rates or other processes. And frankly, where the win-win possibilities are there, you know, so the importance of the Chinese private sector, transparency, intellectual property rights as they move up the value-added chain. Um, it's not that one is Pollyannish about this. You can push on these items. And, and one, but there's other little aspects, whether from a multilateral or from a U.S. perspective, that are interesting. So whenever I was in China, uh, I would go not only to my meetings in Beijing, but I'd go out to another province. And I wanted to see poor people in China. And you mentioned kind of the running. It was sort of, a, I think, a source of amusement because wherever I'd be, I'd go out for sort of a morning run and and in some of these poor towns, they had not seen anybody like this for a while. And and so, but it was good. And at least normally I was in reasonable shape. So I'd show when Americans were fit at least. Um, but the other part of it was it allowed me when I came back, sometimes I did these visits before I went to Beijing to say to the leaders, I've been here, here. Um, I went to Sichuan a couple of times because we helped with the earthquakes. Mm, okay? right. And so... In all countries, but particularly, I think, in China, it matters if you're a foreigner and you're not just there for your commercial interest or your policy agenda, but you're trying to understand their country and you're trying to help when they need help. Yeah? And so uh, for all these reasons, Chinese have this, friend, this phrase, old friend, okay? But, you know, it's used for different purposes. But nevertheless, I think there's some sincerity about people that they feel they've got trusting relationship with, ironically, that can allow you in some ways to be more demanding when you need to be demanding because when I deliver tough messages or other things, they understand I'm not doing it for some ill will, that there's a reason behind, and I try to explain the reason. I, I'm, I'm writing a book at present that's going to come out next year, and I, so I have chapters on different parts of U.S. diplomatic history, and uh, one of them is the opening to China under Nixon and Kissinger. And you, you do see, it's quite interesting, I see echoes of what Kissinger talks about with uh, Premier uh, John Lai. Lai, about saying, look, 
when they're doing the Shanghai communique, don't don't try to trade items with me. If you convince me of the logic of it, I will accept your point. And Kissinger notes how different this was with the Russians during the bludgeoning. And I, I, again, in my experience, acknowledging much of it has been on the economic side, but frankly, also on some of the security issues. I found that, you know, um, and it doesn't mean that you always agree. And, they, and to be honest, you have to understand they have political constraints just like we have political constraints. And that doesn't mean you concede to them, but you need to understand that sort of aspect. Point being, when I also was in China with the World Bank, I would try to always have a press conference in Beijing organized by the World Bank. And they were very crowded events because, frankly, there's lots of Chinese journalists, most of whom probably aren't allowed to ask much of anything of Chinese officials. And I'm being very forthright. And the most, one of the most striking examples of this, but this is another aspect of diplomacy, when the China 2030 report came out, I had this press conference, and uh, some guy stands up and starts disrupting the conference. Well, you can imagine the Chinese journalists thinking, oh, what's this guy doing? And of course, the security people want to hustle him out. And I say, no, 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 let him say his piece. And it was almost like he was shocked. You know, I actually have to speak. I was set up. I knew he was set up to do this by somebody. Uh, and he's defending state-owned enterprises. Mm -hmm. And so I say, let him speak. And then I explain why I have a different view on these topics. Now, I'm partly doing this because I want the young Chinese and journalists and others to realize there's a different system and that you can treat people with respect and come up with reasoned arguments and counter them. And I'm not afraid to hear another points of view on things like that. So all these are part of what I'll call sort of the larger dimension of, of diplomacy with a country. Ambassador Zellick, I've taken a lot of your time. Really appreciate delving through your last three plus decades in dealing with China policy and traveling there. Uh, look forward to your book when it comes out and uh, appreciate your time today. Glad to have a chance to talk to you. Ambassador Robert Zellick speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green. <laughs>